Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw us nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God be praised. What a privilege it is to be here. One of the reasons I accepted this invitation from Dr. Randy Bolton House was because I sensed that I would be meeting people for the first time that I would spend eternity with, so I thought it was about time for us to get to know each other. <laughs> We're here, and we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first first begun. So I'm grateful for this initial um, coming together. We're getting in redemptive rhythm for what will be a never-ending celebration where he will be the order of the day. That's what heaven is all about. It's about him. It's not about jasper walls or golden streets or pearly gates. Ultimately, it is about him. So thank you so much, my brother, for allowing me to come, you and Sister Sarah. I want to tell you that the Lord has used you mightily to do a great work among his people. You've been here 26 years, and you have not been just um, filling time in the pulpit. Uh, the Lord has been using you to fill people with the word of God. So praise God for you. Y'all are a very warm. That's right. I came all the way from Birmingham to tell you about what you already know grateful for that. You're very warm people, and I've told several of you that I feel like I've been with you for many, many years. That's not unusual. That's just the way God's folk act. That's all. No sense of um, uh, being strangers at all. We are one in the Spirit. We're one in the Lord. Now, let's look at the text. Uh, Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. I'm going to talk about what I didn't talk about, uh, bringing in some of the things I didn't talk about the first service. Uh, rated aura for redemption. Rated aura for redemption. And I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Hear these words from the word. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have gone here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come out to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes. The men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. 
So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she leapt them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. I've long contended that the greatest obstacle to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible that the greatest obstacle to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible. That what keeps us from knowing more of the profundity of the depths of the Bible is what we think we already know about the Bible. And therefore, we become, if you will, kind of residents of Scripture instead of tourists. My wife and I were in New York City. We stayed right on Times Square. I was preaching for the Billy Graham Evangelistic uh, Association. And I had not been to Times Square before. And I went downstairs and I began to walk. And uh, people were hurriedly passing by. And I was standing there. Just I'd walk a little bit and look. Look, I recognize that building. December 31st, the ball falling. They were residents. They'd seen it all before. Nothing amazed them. Here I am. Walk about three or four steps. Look up. I think we do this with scripture. We become residents. We've seen it all before. And here's a text that we are really familiar with. And already we put our minds on cruise control because we know this text. We've heard it preached. We've taught it. We've read it. I hope that we'll be tourists. I hope that we will crawl up into the cranium of Yahweh and stay there long enough so that that which once was common is seen as uncommon. And that which once was familiar is seen as being unfamiliar. And the mundane will be transformed into the majestic. And the simple will become the stupendous because God wants to show us something different than we've ever seen before. I think that biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, 
but as mirrors for identity, as James A. Sanders once said. Mirrors for identity. Where am I in this passage? How does this passage mirror me? Who do I associate with in this passage? And if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us is mirrored by Rahab. Can I say it? The prostitute. So I'm calling you, and I'm calling myself a prostitute. Mm. Now you've turned me off already. <laughs> she mirrors us the way we used to be. But God has rated her aura for redemption. In the New Testament, I'm always amazed in Acts chapter 8, where Paul is the church's number one public enemy. He is wreaking havoc, as the opening verses of Acts 9 said, Acts 8 says, tearing up the church. But in chapter 9 of Acts, he's the church's number one public defender. In Acts chapter 8, he's arresting people for worshiping the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, he's arrested on the road leading to Damascus. In Acts chapter 8, he's given orders. But in Acts chapter 9, he's taken orders. Lord, what will you have me to do? In Acts chapter 8, he's incarcerating persons for preaching. In Acts chapter 9, he is coming a preacher himself one chapter away and I say he is notorious for being an enemy of the church in Acts 9 he becomes famous for being a defender one chapter away don't give up on people people are in Acts 8 they're just one chapter away Acts 9 is coming stop giving up on our young people don't say that God doesn't have a future for them. Do you know what it's like to live in Acts chapter 8? But Acts chapter 9 is coming. My soul in long exile was out of life's seat, so burdened with sin and distress. But I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice. And I entered the haven of rest. I've anchored my soul in the heaven of rest. I'll sail the wild seas no more. The tempest may sweep over the wild stormy deep. But in Jesus I am safe evermore. That's what God did for Paul. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 to show you that God doesn't give up on us. He enumerates, not exhaustively, but he enumerates a number of people who would not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Do you not know that the fallen people would not inherit the kingdom of heaven? He says adulterers, idolaters, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, those individuals who are thieves and greedy and male homosexuals and on and on and on. He mentions those. And I can see these Corinthian Christians looking down their noses at these persons and feeling rather arrogant. I'm not on that list. And Paul says, but such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus, second person of the Trinity. And by the power of the Spirit, third person of the Trinity, of God, first person of the Trinity. So God as 
Trinity, triune God, gets involved in our salvation transaction. That he loves us and values us so much that he brings himself in his triunity in order to save us. I hear Paul saying in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, he says, I have not arrived, I have not apprehended, neither am I perfect, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, and reaching forward to the things which are before. I'm pressing, I'm agonizing, I'm straining toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now he says, I'm forgetting the things which are behind, and I'm reaching forward to the things which are before. And yet you hear him say, I am the chief of sinners. I am, not I was, I am the least of the apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church. And he struggles with that, that which was in his past. Though forgiven, he struggles with it. And there are those of us, though God has forgiven us, we struggle. Paul says in Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no, 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 no condemnation to those who in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And yet, there are some who still struggle from the ache of memory. It's been dismissed. It's been washed away. It has evaporated. It has been eradicated. Even the stain is gone. And yet, the memory lingers on, and we fail to talk to our soul in our own soliloquy and tell our soul, it's gone. Stop looking up at the bottom and the soles of your shoes. Get up, Christian. Stop letting people remind you of the address you used to live at. Tell them, I moved from that old house. I moved from the old way of living. I've got a brand new life. Don't even live in the zip code any longer. God has changed me. God has forgiven me. God has not wiped out it that page in the diary of my life. He's torn it out. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Why would you condemn yourself? There are people standing in line waiting to buy tickets to stand over your grave and say to you, earth to earth, ash to ashes, and dust to dust. Say to your soul, I've been liberated. I've been redeemed. And go on in the name of the Lord. And never stop beginning and never begin to stop. Because God has a brand new future for you. Thanks be to God for that. Mm. Now, I know you're wondering when I'm going to get to the text. I've been in the suburbs. I'm going to go downtown, Main Street, to the text. Rahab is rated R for redemption. Just about every time the name Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, there's always that accompanying dubious designation. Chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 1. The spies are into the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Chapter 6, verse 17 of Joshua. Rahab the prostitute. Chapter 6, verse 22. 
the two spies are told to go into the house of the prostitute, verse 23, whose name is Rahab. Chapter 6, verse 25 of Joshua, the text says that Rahab, the prostitute, and her family members who were in her house were spared. Now, that's Old Testament. And surely now, once we have crossed over from Malachi into Matthew up to Revelation, whenever she's mentioned, surely that dubious designation has dropped. But we read in Hebrews 11.31, the hall of faith, that by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with the disobedient because she welcomed the spies. And she's even called the prostitute in Hebrews, the hall of faith. And there it is in James chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, Rahab, the prostitute, was justified by works because she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a different direction. Rahab, the prostitute. And it is not until we read Matthew 1 and 5 that the dubious designation drops. And there in the genealogy of Jesus, it says that Rahab, not the prostitute, but just Rahab, married Solomon. And Rahab and Solomon had a son by the name of Boaz. And Boaz married a woman by the name of Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz had a son by the name of Obed. And Obed had a son by the name of Jesse. And Jesse had a son by the name of David. And J. David had a son by the name of Jesus. Because when you get associated with Jesus, the dubious designation drops. And thanks be to God mm, that he has rated us all for redemption. 103, verse 10 through 12 of the book of Psalms, says that when God forgives us, he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. The implication is so they won't rise to condemn us. And Corrie Ten Boom, who is a survivor of the Holocaust from Holland, but from the Holocaust in Germany, the concentration camps where she is, paraphrases that by saying that when God forgives us, he casts our sins from the east and from the west, and he puts a no fishing allowed sign on the banks, which means that no one can purchase a license to fish up your sin, and you can't even purchase a license to fish up your own sin. Why? Because they are no longer there. You may know the name Robin Roberts, Anchor woman of Good Morning America. In April 2012, her mother, Marianne Tolliver Roberts, told her, knowing that she was anticipating, that is, Robin was anticipating uh, breast cancer surgery, she said, Robin, cancer has made a mess of your life, but make your mess your message. Make your mess your message. It's the same message that Daryl Strawberry, who used to play for the New York Mets, great left-handed power hitter, has. He's now converted a minister and he has as his promotion making your mess your message. That's what Christ does for us. And therefore, we ought to use, if you will, our mess as a testimony for our message. We ought to be able to tell people that God has brought me from too. That's the word of John Newton in his great hymn 
Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because everybody knows what it is to live in the wasness of life and be transitioned to the isness of life. I once was, but now I am. And God wants to do that for everybody who will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. I give you this, and then I move on. The prodigal son's father, and in fact, that parable, correctly uh, put, is not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the waiting father. It's not about the son. It's about the father who waited. And you see this son making up his apologetic speech. I mean that in the sense of showing regret to his father. He's going to say to his father, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. Make me one of your hired, your, your son, make me one of your hired servants. And as he makes his way home, the Bible says that before the boy sees the father, the father sees the boy. The father's sitting on the porch. And the father runs to the boy, which is countercultural. The father runs. Because that's what God does. He always pursues us. He always initiates us. Uh, we don't look for him. He looks for us. Adam, where are you? Adam's not looking for God. God's looking for Adam. And when anybody says, I found the Lord, you got it wrong. The Lord has never been lost. The Lord found you. And the Bible says that when the boy came and the father ran and hugged him and kissed him and put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and a robe on his back, that the father said to the servant, go and kill the fatted calf. Kill it. Not go and fatten the calf. But go and kill the fat cat, the ones we've been fattening, the one we've been fattening all along, knowing that this boy was going to come back. But we just kept on fattening the cat until he came back. Do you know what it's like? I know what it's like. For a child to go into the far country that you raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Jim Simbola knows what that's like. Some of the great leaders know what that's like. And maybe you know what it's like when your child gets to the place that she or he acts like they don't even know you and you're fearful of them. And there is this disregard for manners and respect. And there is this disregard for education. And there is this disregard for discipline, breaking all the curfews, challenging you. And you wonder, where did this boy come from? Keep on fattening the cat. Keep on fattening the cat. Keep on praying. Keep on sitting on the porch. Keep on looking down the road. And that child may come home even when the prayer dies. Because when the prayer dies, the prayer is still activated around the throne of God. And God can answer the prayer even when you go. Keep on fattening the calf. Joshua sends two spies. Come on, Robert, get to Main Street. Sends two spies to Jericho to check out the mindset and, if you will, the infrastructure of the city. He does something wise. Moses sent 40 spies 40 years earlier, and they came back with a conflicted report. Joshua is a good leader. He only sends two. It's as if he understands that if you want to guarantee that nothing is going to get done on the committee, put too many people on it. So he doesn't send 12. He sends two. And they go to a prostitute's house, Rahab, and they begin to find out what's going on in the city. They want to go there incognito. They want to go there without being recognized and remain anonymous. But they are detectives. 
And the word gets to the king of Jericho who sends members of the JPD, the Jericho Police Department, to the house of the prostitute. And she is asked about them and she says, yes, they came here, but they have since left. And if you will pursue them right away, you'll be able to catch them as they are leaving this area. That's a lie. It's not truth. Did God need it? No, God had already promised Abraham back in the 12th chapter of Genesis that you are, now this is about 600 years earlier, you're going to have all of this land. So God didn't need her to lie. But forget about the lie. She had faith, and I must concentrate not on what she said about the spies, but what she said to these men about God. You know what she said about God in chapter 2, verse number 11? After telling the men of the Jericho Police Department, I know you're going to have the land. I know that your God has fought for you. I know that he opened up the Red Sea and caused the walls to stand as retainer walls as the children of Israel crossed over on dry land. I know that your God has fought for you and defeated Og and Sihon, the king, uh, kings of these uh, cities on the east side of the Jordan. But your God is God in heaven and on earth. That's verse 11. He's sovereign. And as a result of that, our hearts are melting with fear. So don't concentrate on what she lied about. Concentrate on what she told the truth about. She has faith, but it's flawed faith. She's like the father of faith, Abraham, who went all the way down to Egypt. And when the king looked at his wife, he began to think, that is, Abraham began to think, he wants my wife. If he takes my wife, he's going to kill me. So he got intentional amnesia and said, that's not my wife. That's my children, my, 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 my sister. You know what God did? In spite of that lie, God used him and raised him up and made him the father of the faith. And God is going to take this woman who's rated R. He's going to rate her for redemption, for redemption and put her in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 and 31. I think we make the mistake that when the Rahabs come to our place, our church, we want to keep Take and clean them before we catch them. God said, catch the fish. He didn't say clean them. Let people come into the church. Don't clean them. Catch them. They don't have to look a certain way. They don't have to have their hair a certain way. They don't have to dress a certain way. They don't have to use the language of Zion, hallelujah, glory, uh, God is immutable and all that stuff. Let them talk the way they talk. Even if they use some profanity, that's all right. You just catch them. Watch God clean them. He'll give them a new vocabulary. He'll give them new respectability. In fact, I'm looking at about the 400 people who have been caught, but they're not totally clean yet. None of us are perfect. God is in the business of cleaning us, sanctifying us, making us whole. So please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. When God gets through with me, I shall come forth as pure gold. Well, she takes and hides these spies on the roof, covers them up with flax. And when the members of the JPD, the Jericho Police Department, take and seek out uh, these spies on the road, not knowing that they're on the roof, when they have left and the city gates are shut, verse number 7, 
Bible says that she goes up on the roof and she says in negotiating, uh, negotiating manner, look, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I saved you, I want you to save my family. And what they say to her is, if you will take and gather your own family members and have them to come to your house, then when the Jericho walls fall and the city is destroyed, then they will be saved. And then she lets them get out of the city without being noticed. How? Because the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 5, that at dusk the gates were shut. The Bible says in chapter 2, verse 7, that the gates were shut. And in, Jer- 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 in uh, Joshua 6 and 1, the Bible says that the gates were straightly shut. Now, how do you get out of the city of Jericho and uh, the doors are shut, the gates are shut? The Bible says in verse 15, her house is built in the wall, and the wall is so wide, according to ancient uh, Jewish historian uh, Flavin Josephus, that two chariots can ride side by side along each other and not fall over. Uh, These are um, monumental walls. But the Bible says in verse 15, she let them out through the window. Gates are shed. She lets them out through the window. It's kind of a foreshadowing what God will do for his people. When all the gates and doors are shut in your life and you need to get through, from through, so that you get to something, God will open windows when gates are shut. God will open doors, gates will open windows when doors are shut. Never put a period where God has put a comma. It's just a pause. And I don't care what kind of obstacle is in front of you. When God gets ready to open that gate, he'll do it. Let them close doors on your face. Have you any rivers that you think are impossible? Do you have any mountains that you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things that seem to be impossible, and he will do what no other power can do. I read a couple letters this morning. I won't read them. But they're letters from my son's murderer. Young man is 17 years of age broke in, not broke in, but came in on pre-Halloween night at the restaurant my son was working in. Our son, who was 34 at the time, was in the back frying chicken and uh, french fries, etc. And they tried to rob the store. Tried to open the safe, but cash register and the safe, but jammed both. Came and got Tony. Brought him out and forced him to open up the cash register and the safe, but they were jammed. The other three left, and out of frustration, this 17-year-old man fired a shot into my son's heart, and Tony made the transition from the terrestrial to the celestial, from time to eternity, just like that. And I struggled with that a long time. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger. Why, at 34, is his life snuffed out when 20 years earlier I had been robbed at gunpoint at a store and I was spared. Why was I spared and he was not spared? I read the letter. It took me a year to finally respond to God who asked me, do you really believe what you've been preaching about forgiveness? Do you really believe it? You're not exegeted. You're not explaining it. You're not to talk about Joseph forgiving his brothers. You're not here to talk about Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they do not what they do. Did that on the cross. Do you really believe it? And I wrote him. It took him a year to write me back. And what he said in the letter was he didn't understand why I 
would forgive him, why I would write him. He apologized for causing so much pain in our lives, he said. And he wanted to know in the final analysis how, upon his getting out of prison, which would be a long time, how he could enroll in a school like the one I teach in. He doesn't know this, but there is a scholarship. It's the Antonio Marie Smith Scholarship for persons who of African-American descent cannot afford to go to school. I may be dead and gone. I just believe I told him. You've got to understand that God takes murderers like Moses and makes them liberators. And God takes murderers like David and makes them great kings. And God can even take a man who holds the garments of those who are stoning Stephen like Saul and make him a great apostle. That there is nothing that God cannot rescue a person from. And it would be wonderful one day for him to get the Antonio Marie Smith scholarship and enroll in the Beast of Divinity School in the name of the one whose life he took because of the one whose life was given for every one of us. Forgiveness is not, forgiveness is not difficult. It's just impossible without God. I want to say that again. Forgiveness is not difficult. It's just impossible without God. I don't have the wherewithal. People look at me like I'm a hero. I'm not a hero. It's what God is doing. I'm amazed at how I feel. Am I hurt? Yes. Do I get over it? No. Is he taking me through it? Yes. And people who really need to be forgiven are not ultimately the oppressed, the oppressors, but the oppressed. And um, we need to forgive others. The weight is too heavy to carry around. Holding all of these grudges and this envy against people, it's got to go. Some of us stay up at night, midnight, watching tapes of things that people did to us 10, 15 years ago. And some of those same people that we are upset with are snoring and we can't sleep and we are having heart palpitations. Some of them are even dead. You've got to let that go and let God heal you and use you as a vehicle to heal other people. And she let them down through the window. This takes and looks back to the Passover. Because that scarlet cord reaches back into the past and shows at the time when that lamb that was blemishless and spotless was killed. And the men of the families were to take the blood of that lamb and smear it over the doorposts and lintels of their homes so that when the death angel came down there in Egypt and saw the blood, he would pass over. When the spies would go and that scarlet cord would be on the window, God would respect that. And I think do what I call selective demolition and keep that section of the wall standing because the oath was made in his name. But it also looks forward to a time where the Bible says that Jesus would eat the Lord's Supper and with his disciples. And those individuals who ate the Lord's Supper, it was saying what we're going to say this morning. I'm declaring the death the resurrection and even the coming again of Jesus because he will not eat of the fruit of the tree and eat the bread with us and drink the wine until he does it in his father's kingdom. Uh, this red, this scarlet cord points backwards, retrospectively and forward, perspectively, when it comes to what God has done and what God is going to do. Now quickly, it's true enough that she saved her whole family. The most difficult people to witness to are those in our family. 
And God gave her time. Number one, they were, that is, these two spies, after they left the city of Jericho, were to stay in the hills and hide three days. Then they crossed the fords of the Jordan. They told Joshua. And Joshua would wait three days before they would cross the Jordan River. That's about a week. There are about a million people or more who have to cross the Jordan River as God takes and dams up the waters of the Jordan up here and the rest of the Jordan flow downstream and they cross over on dry ground. In other words, God takes and puts I-55 right in the middle of the Jordan River and dries it up and they don't get their feet wet. They cross over. That's going to take a while. Then they take and uh, have a memorial at Gilgal. And then the Bible says the men are circumcised. Those who didn't come out of Egypt, they're circumcised. That's going to take a while for healing. That's another few days at least. And then they're going to march around the Jordan, around the Jericho walls one time on the first day uh, and the second day and the third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. And then on the seventh day, seventh time. That's another week. It was given to her about three weeks probably to witness. And she's knocking on doors. Telling others, you better come into the house, better come into the house, better come into the house. We don't know when the wall's going to fall. Don't go shopping. Don't go to a baseball game. You better stay in this house because the security has nothing to do with how ethical and moral you are. The security has to do with your position. Where are you? Are you in the house? Which is emblematic, are you in Christ? The truth of the matter is, God, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, is not slack concerning his promises, as some people count slackness, but is long-suffering. Listen to this. Long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you are here right now, God has not coincidentally, incidentally, or accidentally spared your life, but providentially spared your life, that you might hear the gospel once more and respond to him. If I'm wrong about heaven and there is no heaven, I've still lived the best life because love is greater than hate and peace is greater than despair. I've still lived the best life. But if you're wrong about hell, you're wrong a long time and you'll miss out on the best that is yet to come. It's not my best life now. It's my best life then. Because the one then is the one now who gives me life. But let me wrap this up. After that seventh revolution around the walls of Jericho on the seventh day, the Bible says in chapter 6 of Joshua, verse 20, the walls, and I've told you how prodigious and how monumental these walls were in terms of thickness and solidarity. The walls fell down Flat. Do you know what flat means? Flat means flat. That's it. Flat. It, it, it's cataclysmic. It's, 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 it's catastrophic. It's, it's inexplicable that God, without dynamites, without any kind of material implosive, element brought the walls down flat then if in chapter 6 of Joshua verse 15 where it says that Rahab's house where she and her mother and father sisters and brothers and their family members were residing how did they survive if the whole wall came down flat I just want to suggest to you that I think God 
performed selective demolition and left one section of the wall standing because an oath has been made in his name. You say he can't do it. God is not logical. God is super logical. In other words, God doesn't make sense. Here is a God in Genesis chapter 1. The first creative act in verse 3 is this. Let there be light. Okay. But the fourth day, he says, let there be sun, moon, and stars. Now, that makes absolutely no sense to me. On the first day, he's going to say, let there be light. And three days later, he's going to say, let there be sun, moon, and stars. No. If I would have done it, I would have said, let there be sun, moon, and stars first day. Let there be light fourth day. Makes sense. Our God. God can say, let there be light on the first day and then don't bring the sun, moon, and stars that bring light and reflect light four day, three days later. Because in the eschaton, that is in the future, Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, the text says that there be no sun, no moon, no stars, but there will be light. Why? Because God is the light of the city. And light doesn't come from the sun. Light originally comes from God. And God lets sun borrow light. And then sun reflects light on the stars. And the stars reflect light on the earth. But it originally comes from God. I don't concentrate on, well, what took place here? Did this, was this really an act of selective demolition? You know what I look at? I know that the section in the, of the wall that I'm still living in is still standing when other things around me fall. I know what it's like to hear the word cancer still standing. I know what it's like to lose a young wife still standing. I know what it's like to lose a son still standing. I know what financial reversals are still standing. I know what it is to be betrayed by people who are close to still standing. Because when everything else around you crumbles, God can still enable you to stand because he's holding you up. Well, she is rescued. Because of her faith in God. In fact, Paul says, or rather whoever wrote Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31, says that by faith, Rahab did not perish with the disobedient because she welcomed the spies. But James says in James 2.25 that Rahab was justified by faith because she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a different direction. Was she justified by faith or justified by works? Both. Faith works. Faith produces works. And when you have real faith, you work not for salvation, but from salvation. I already have salvation. I just now have the can't help it. I just can't help but to live for him. I can't help but to serve him. And that one section, I believe, stood. Well, Rahab is a different person now. I just can't believe that Rahab went back to being a madame of the best little house wherever she would live. I think that she institutes a different ecclesiology. That big word means that she institutes what the church would now look like. She's a Gentile. And in the New Testament, the new society, the revelation is that God would bring Gentiles into a Jewish church. Everybody saved in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, they were Jews. But here's a woman in the Old Testament 
who is a Gentile, and God brings her into the church. Because as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile. She initiates a new eschatology. That means the future. Things will look, will look differently, futuristically. Because now, people out of every, Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, out of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue will be part of the kingdom. So I just came to announce to you, because you're beginning to look even more like the kingdom. That's the way it's got to be. As Charles Colson, who died and was the founder of Prison Fellowship in his book on loving God, he says, people who really need to hear the gospel oftentimes don't hear it because we keep evangelizing the same people over and over again until our final, final reason for existing, existing is to entertain ourselves, to entertain ourselves. And I got to get to the place where I understand that there are going to be people like, that look like Randy that's going to be in heaven. Heaven's not going to be all black. I can understand that. I can understand that God is going to bring Asians and Latinos and Native Americans and whites and blacks and people who are all brought to... Because the kingdom of God is a rainbow coalition. Really rainbow coalition. And if I can't handle worshiping with my brother, just sitting next to him, shaking his hand, I've got eternity to get used to this. Because... The church on earth has to be a Kodak moment of the future state of eternity. We ought to start looking more. There you go. More like it. I start looking more like that. So that the atmosphere has been conditioned so it's conducive for co-inheritance. I'm not just talking about adhesion, stick to each other, and I, you know, recognize him when I see him at Walmart, but I don't speak to him all the time. No, I'm a part of Randy, and he's a part of me. That's why we didn't have to warm up to each other after 30 years. Because we have the same mama. This brother has a different mother, but we got the same father. And father is our God, which keeps us one. And I think that she changes the liturgy. She's been worshiping pagan gods before. But look what she says in Joshua 2 and 11. God is God in heaven and on earth. And she becomes a worshiper of God. And last of all, she has a different life. I think that when she gets saved and she's rated off of redemption, she gets rid of all of her prostitution books, doesn't have any John, doesn't have any pimps, doesn't have any prostitutes, doesn't, organize, doesn't take and orchestrate any of that because her life is under new management. And when God takes and changes you, the past is past. And God has given you a brand new life. I know they're adverse, there's adversity there, but he's with you. That's what, what happened on the cross. This is a hard thing for me to understand. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm leaving you with this now. I really am. He who knew no sin became sin. That you and I who are sinners might be made righteous with God. You know what that means? He who knew no prostitution became a prostitute became a murderer, became an adulterer, became a thief. When I said became, I mean he took on. He became sin without sinning. And I don't understand that. He stayed who he was, God, and yet became what he was not, human. And died on the cross. But that was not enough because the crucifixion was not enough. 
He had to get up from the grave. David had died, but he didn't get up. Elisha had died, but he didn't get up. Abraham had died, but he didn't get up. But on the third day, he arose from the dead with all power in his hand, and we can sing. Redeemed, I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed. His child and forever I am. Father, thank you for what we will need an eternity to thank you for. You have brought all of us out of something. For all of us were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own and to her own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Thank you for redemption, not just, no, renovation was not enough. Remodeling was not enough. Restructuring was not enough. But for redemption, for buying us back. We know that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. You gave your life that we might be your children. And if there's anyone here now, Lord, I pray that you impress upon their heart. Let them know that you're still in the redeeming business. If they've been accused and abused, you can still redeem them. If they've been baffled or beleaguered, you can still redeem them. If they've been depleted and deleted, you can still use them. If they've been criticized, ostracized, and blind, you can still use them. And you want to take our hurts, our pain, our blisters, our foibles, our wrinkles, our wounds, our lacerations. Bind them up and use them as a testimony for what you can do in our lives. I commit this time to you now, Lord, by your spirit, work on our hearts. Redeem us, change us, restore us, reinvigorate us in Jesus' name. For the pastor.